How do you tell the story of a band that's been around for nearly 30 years, where essentially every aspect, membership, music, performance, is freeform? It's really hard to have a narrative that would make any sense to a listener or a reader. A band featuring over 50 members. They record everything on stage and off, and they have over 200 releases. You know that we don't play songs. You say, oh, Sunburn Hand of the Man are playing, and you really have no idea what, like, how many people it's going to be or what the show's going to be like. No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man assembled from conversations with 15 current and past band members and an assortment of their friends, including Ethan Miller, Neil Campbell, and Thurston Moore. You're always in the band. Once you're in the band, you're always in the band. A bunch of people willing to work together to do something that was very uncommercial. Confounding the audience was, I think, as important as impressing the audience. We'll hear first-person accounts of the band's many exploits on and off the stage. We're jamming, and then Thurston comes out, guitar, and like, trash bag over his head. And then Lee comes out, same thing, and I was like, ah, ah, psycho vibes, like, and then Michael Morley from the Dead Sea comes out. This is not stopping, you know, and it didn't stop. Are the shows still going when you get in the van, you know? Sort of like, still part of, part of life the way it should be. And we'll explore how and why Sunburn has lasted for so long. We're talking about how a band isn't a fixed thing, and it's really hard to, describe it without like nailing it down and then and then it can no longer move, which is what it does. But that's a, that is a great question. I don't really know why we're still together because a lot of things like this don't last. So join us while we try to wrap our heads around how this bizarre creative endeavor has come to mean so much to so many people. What band has like stayed good for 30 years and you know is like finding like a new audience? And I can think of anybody who would look at that cover and go, who like, who the hell are these bozos? But I knew. And I was just like, these are my people. The perpetual motion machine of Sunburn. No way out. Yeah, there's no way out of it. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to be out of it. I don't want to be out of it. I'm happy. Hi, I'm Kelly Davis. I'm a longtime college radio DJ, and I've spent the last 15 or so years volunteering at WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. I'm here with my friend, Allison Hussey. Hey, Allison. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for coming to talk to me. Um, so just so the listeners know, we are in the radio station at WXDU here in Durham, but you don't live here these days. So could you briefly introduce yourself? I am a music journalist currently living in Brooklyn, New York, formerly of the Triangle area of North Carolina. And you're just, you're down for a visit, so. Yeah, visiting yeah. some family and here to, here to chat. Yeah, awesome. So I asked you to come talk to me because I'm working on a project and, well, you know, it all starts out with our mutual friend, Corey Raver. For the listeners, Corey runs the record label Three Lobed Recordings. He and I are friends and collaborators, and back in the spring of 2022, Corey floated the idea to me of doing a podcast about the band Sunburned Hand of the Man. A while later, I was going to hang out with him at his house, and while our kids played upstairs, I set my recording equipment up in his basement. I wanted to ask him to elaborate on this podcast idea. Well, you've got a, a band with a very long history, with a very 
deep roster and a very deep discography. It's so deep and so big, it's beyond just a simple conversation. And it felt to me like a deep oral history would probably make sense in some capacity. And a podcast might be a way to do that. And you're, you're a good person at unpacking stories. I was intrigued, but this is a band that's been around for a quarter century and featured tons of members. So I asked him if I should start by reaching out to John Maloney and Rob Thomas. They're the band's founders and longest running members. Yeah, John and Rob seem like really natural starting points. Okay. So, I mean, I think I have an idea of like where to start and kind of like, I I think the way you described it, like kind of oral history styled, digging around in a bunch of people's different stories. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of content to work through. Uh, I mean, I've, I've listened to most of those records, but... I, you know, I don't know. Has it, has anybody other than you listened to and, and then people, I'm not even sure I've listened to all of them. I mean, I'm not even sure if people I know who are zealots such as yourself have gotten all the way through every single thing. Right. I think the thing that's hard for me is figuring out like how to explain the intro. Like what, how do you even describe sunburn? Every time I've seen them play, it's always been different. Sure. It's always been a different lineup even. like, But it also doesn't, it's also not different. There's like a unifying sound that's there. And I don't know how to explain it to somebody who's not like already like fully consecrated into the mysteries of the cult of Sunburner. I don't, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you do, do you need like an outside guide to help push you along? Yeah, I think that would and, make and help sense. guide your questions. Yeah, and guide your journey, so to speak. Yeah, but somebody that's not you, because you're also. Like, oh yeah, I'm too deep. Yeah, I swallowed the hook long yeah. ago. You know, Allison, that part about getting a guide was excellent advice. But then I saw John Maloney at a sunburn show, and things kind of snowballed from there. Before I knew it, I was in the car driving up to the band's HQ in Northampton, Massachusetts. And, of course, John had set me up to record stories and conversations with all the active Sunburn members and quite a few of the inactive members. You know, I I used whatever equipment was on hand, and I recorded in basements, and living rooms, in the car, a lot of video chats. The audio quality is a little variable. There are a lot of names and voices to keep track of, but I think all of that is in keeping with how this band has functioned and operated for a really long time. And I'm a little freaked out about it all. And it's not because of the complexity of everything. It's because when I sat down and talked to everybody, they were really forthcoming and heard some powerful stories that I want to be careful with and want to be able to tell to an average listener so that they can make sense of it. And I'm keenly aware, or maybe I'm just super self-conscious, that I feel very alien when I try to talk to, like, normal, you know, like, not anxious people about music. And then I remembered Corey's suggestion about getting an outside voice, someone who could understand my zeal and also translate my alien babble about music. Someone that could help me zero in on the questions that would help an average listener make sense of all these stories. And I thought, hey, hey, I should ask Allison. You're a person who thinks about how to talk about music. And I don't think that you are, well, to use Corey's word, a zealot about Sunburn. Do I do I have that right? Yeah, I think they're they're a band I've enjoyed like quite a bit over the last few years. Um yeah, I I know that they are kind of a band that attracts like super fans, including a stranger I met in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. But Yeah, I feel like trying to make any kind of elevator pitch on this particular band can be really difficult 
on one hand, it's really difficult if you're not familiar with everything they've done because there's no kind of singular way to sum up their catalog. But then also I think that that same reason can make it really difficult if you do know everything they've done because then it's like, well, how do you tie this many different kinds of like sounds and people and types of releases and, you know, settings and motivations behind everything like how do you sum that up in like three sentences and and i can do it in three sentences but it doesn't but that that doesn't capture what i think the podcast needs to capture yeah Um, because because i want to go you know go deeper but it's also very like bewildering and and it's a band that see that you know like for me personally has sometimes been like very hard to start to even like pull a thread on because it's like where they're yeah because of their kind of like deep history. Yeah, I think that something like this will be good to kind of like dig into something that is a big deal and has been a big deal to a lot of people, but I think can very easily be inscrutable to anyone kind of remotely outside of the orbit. Yes, awesome. I I think we are on the same wavelength. This is that's uh, that's great to hear. I've been thinking about ways to start telling this story and I wondered how do you discover new music? What are, you know, if you're first getting into a band, what are some of the ways that that happens? Um, I think I put a lot of stock just in what people I know recommend to me. That almost kind of is like a, I kind of hate to use this word, but almost like a curatorial touch where it's almost like I know if this band has like this person's stamp of approval that I know it might be interesting. Usually I feel like I rely pretty heavily on like one-to-one kind of like personal recommendations or just like the interests of like what my friends are interested in um, Mm -hmm. is how I find out a lot about a lot of new stuff. Yeah, that's pretty much the same for me. And it exactly describes how I first learned about Sunburn. Corey Rayburn is, you know, he's the starting point for lots of music that I love. And he'd put out a couple of the Sunburn records on Three Lobed years ago. Then we booked them for a couple of shows and over time it just went deeper and deeper and deeper. And now I really like following that chain to see how did the person that got me into a thing get into that thing and so on and so forth. So I asked Corey about how he first got into Sunburn. So I first heard Sunburn, I'm going to say 2000 or 2001. I want to feel like it was probably a a couple of them at the same time. Like it was probably Jay Bird and the Wild Animal. Yeah, how did you first find out about them? The descriptions in the old Eclipse Records mail order catalog. That catalog was a real North Star wayfinding device for lots of just outsider music. And at a point when the web was certainly in existence, but not the same degree of like interconnectedness. It was we get pre-social networks and social medias and everything else. And the descriptions on some of those earliest Sunburn CDRs pulled me in. And the material was really inviting in its chaos, but its structure at the same time. And it's it was like a, it was an expansion of so much of the freer form, multi-party improvised music operations. Like it was around the same time that I was getting into pretty heavily into No Neck Blues Band, but also older material cut from a similar cloth. 
and it really connected, but it had a different vibe to it than the other stuff did. Kind of hard to really put a finger on what that was, but it was just different. And, you know, it was, it was not closed off. I mean, was it secretive? Yes. But was it secretive by intent? Not necessarily. It was, you know, it was just a bunch of mysterious CDRs. Some had more information in them than others. And while that's all really interesting and tells parts of the story, I don't think that there's a straightforward starting point in there that'll make sense to an average listener. I don't know. So like, what, what do you think? Okay. So is this something that can be told chronologically? Sure. There's a chronological version of the story, but I don't know. I feel like that's a version that works best in print media. And I think it's been told. There's a handful of interviews that you can get on the internet right now that will walk you through the key moments of Sunburn's history. But that version, the linear narrative, it doesn't feel in keeping with many of these stories I've collected. And it doesn't really feel in line with how this band has existed over the years. And there are three clips I want to share with you that explain what I mean. The first is Ron Schneiderman. He's a longtime Sunburn member, and it's from a moment where he's talking about what initially drew him in and kept him going with the band for all these years. I like the idea that it was like things were kind of more elevated and not just like on a, on a line. It wasn't like a, it was like there's no sort of beginning or end. Like it's still kind of going, you know, like the show's still going when you get in the van, you know? Yeah. And it's always been sort of... Yeah. What I've always really loved about it was like it's sort of like still part of part of life the way it should be. And now, my interpretation of what Ron is saying there is that there isn't really a starting or a stopping point to this story. It's all just one big unified thing, and it stretches in every direction. But the focus is on right now, and now that could just be Ron's take. But the purpose of this podcast is to hear all these voices and try to blend them together to figure out some unified story. So let's move on to this next clip I want to share. It's from Rob Thomas. He's one of the band's founding and longest running members. This is how he sees the shape of the band's story. Uh, and a project like this might go like something that's gone for uh, like a whole generation. Basically, it's been 25 years of this. I suspect it's like a, the shape of it's a spiral. And there's points of it that path along the spiral, there are parts that are sort of equal, but they get a little bigger as they spiral out, like a ripples in a pond or something. So there's things that, you know, I feel we're at a point right now, very similar to the one we were in right before um, we first got any attention. You know, there was that time, it was all, all the attention we got was very simultaneous because it started with David Keenan writing about us in The Wire, and then we got the, the cover story in The Wire, and then the, like the really hot review and Pitchfork and Julian Cope's thing were all basically within just a few months of each other and that opened all the doors to getting press and getting the ability to travel and do these shows and things like that although i immediately being sort of just born genetically as a contrarian it made me nervous getting attention i'm like oh if people are into what we're doing then we must be doing something wrong you know that's my that's like my framework i you know like i said the the, the dichotomy john and i you know john is like no we have to go forward we just have to sh- share this with people let people deal with it we have to bring it we have to go places and do things and i have the uh the vibe of like you know if if people are into it 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 can't be good but you know we've tempered that and then the other clip was from chris corsano Mm -hmm. and do you know 
Chris? Yeah, I well, I don't know Chris on a personal basis at all, but he I'm familiar with his work mostly because I feel like if there has been a weird record that's come out in the past like 10 or 20 years, he there's like an 80% chance that he played drums on it. Yeah, totally. That's and that exactly explains who Chris Corsano is. Chris played in Sunburn for a while in the the some of the band's early years, and so he and I talked uh, at length and this is what he had to say. So your point of view from within the band is kind of amazing just because it's it just it's way more fluid and you don't have to define everything and and it doesn't have to be like one totality like even you know the band there'll be like a bunch of synth weirdness going on at the same time as hand drums and like these lockdown rhythms but then somebody's like you know and then it's just all a giant kind of swirl and that's sort of what the you know story of the band should be although it's really hard to have a narrative that would make any sense to a listener or a reader that would be true you know, like anything, you just have to filter it through what humans can kind of handle with their, their little minds, right? You know, like it's just, it's a hard story to tell and have it reflect how it felt. Again, there's something about the nature of this band. Engaged in a creative endeavor that's freeform or, I don't know, maybe it's freestyle. I'm not really sure what to call it because this is an entity that feels like they actively resist the limitations of definition. So terminology aside... Their focus is on the thing that happens in the moment, where the assembled players, whoever's there, are telepathically tapped into some subconscious something, and they're bringing it forth into our, like, you know, this corporeal world. So what Chris was saying lines up with what I'm grappling with. This story is hard to tell partly because what this band is doing is just so weird. It defies all conventional rules and jamming their story into some familiar preset narrative, it's not just that it wouldn't feel true, it's that it would shortchange the value of this whole undertaking. I have stories from a dozen points of view, and that's out of dozens more that I haven't heard from. So I can make a collage out of these stories that hopefully tells a bigger story, and it's not necessarily objective truth, but I believe there's a lot we can learn about the band and maybe ourselves through this listening. So that's where I am. It's a little chaotic. I hope you could follow it. And I'm trying to figure out where to go next. So what do you think? Where would you go? Yeah. So who did you talk to outside of the band to kind of help you wrap your head around like what exactly they were doing? Yeah, I spoke with a number of people. And the one that stands out the most is Byron Coley. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. But for the listener, Byron is a prominent music writer who's written for a slew of publications like Force Exposure, The Wire, and I think he was an underground editor at Spin in the 80s and 90s. I asked Byron to talk about Sunburn's impact on the wider music scene and what he finds most compelling about the band. When uh, David Keenan, you know, sort of dubbed them the kings of new weird America, that was a, you know, that was something that really, I think, got their name around a lot more. And of course, you know, you look at the cover and it's like, 
are all these people in that band? I mean, not realizing that the band has always also been, you know, mutating. So they have a, an amoeba-like quality that lets a lot of different people participate in stuff. And at the same time, allows them to perform in a lot of different ways. I think that they've helped people come around to a kind of like, you know, psychedelic, like post-punk psychedelic kind of sound that um, is not based on uh, a lot of like guitar wankery. But their sound has always been much more uh, oriented uh, towards a group sound. But the group is always flux. The so group sound and the size and the, the, the composition of the instruments or the combination of the instruments is always changing, is always in flux. Their sort of omnipresence at a certain level of the scene has just made them, you know, somebody who just a lot of people, you know, people really know who they are and have a general idea of what it is that they do. And I don't think anybody has more than a general idea of what it is that they do because they're not monochromatic at all. I always think it's really good when you can, you know, you have this sunburn, you say, oh, sunburn hand of the man are playing and you really have no idea what, like how many people it's going to be or what the show is going to be like. And that's a, that's a very attractive element. I think that last part from Byron resonates deeply with me. I'm a person that's immersed myself in music in a kind of atypical way. That's partly down to how alien I feel around other humans. And so for a long time, music was a primary way for me to have any kind of personal connection with other people. And that process of immersing myself in music, it never ends. I don't have that typical nostalgic connection to music like most people do. I'm always moving forward. And I'm often most excited by art, these days at least, that doesn't just give me what I want and expect. I love to just let go of the control, drop out with a band that will always defy my expectations and usually blows my mind. I think that's part of why I'm doing this podcast, because Sunburn is, for me, the pinnacle of be here now, wide open creative expression and connection. But moving us along, did that clip from Byron help? Did that give you some ideas about how to keep moving forward? I know that I can, as somebody who like writes myself, I can definitely understand that there's kind of only so far that you can get when it comes to explaining with words what a band sounds like. So yeah. Yeah. is there a clip that you can play that, is, that you would say is maybe perhaps representative of what Sunburn, Hand of the Man sounds like or does? Yeah. Um, so two answers to that question. No. <laughs> because they've got... 200 albums or more mm -hmm. um but also yes i think so let me preface this by saying that even as a fanatic of sunburn before i started this project i really didn't comprehend what this band was doing when they played and i'm still trying to wrap my brain around it but i think this is a useful example it's the second track from an album called earth do eagles do this is one of the 26 albums credited to the band in 2007. You heard that right, just one year. The audio was captured during a European tour in the summer of 2006, where the band actually picked up a member along the way. On the day this performance happened, the band had already improv jammed with the Finnish experimental band Circle for three hours. But that's a story for another episode. 
The recording that we're going to consider was from later that night. A couple of really important things to know about Sunburn. First, this is a band that tapes everything. Anytime they're playing, and sometimes when they aren't, they are recording it. The other is that, on the whole, they jam freestyle, which means nothing's pre-composed or rehearsed. When they play, it's not like, you do this, or I'll start in that key. They just plug in and go. I even heard a couple of times where people said, you know, we tried to make these kinds of plans, and of course it didn't happen. That's how this band rolls. I'm going to play about three minutes from this track, because that's how long it takes for it to all come together, and I want to draw your attention to these parts. The first few measures feature warping tendrils of electronics. There's a bass line that's just starting to emerge, and Rob Thomas is taking his first steps into a vocal stream of consciousness. Now, these are all independent parts. They're out of sync with each other, perhaps only connected through proximity. Across that first minute, you'll hear the electronics and guitar tendrils float down and they begin to wrap themselves around the bass line. Then, just after the one-minute mark, the vocalist moans and wails, and you'll hear him kind of being pulled into the groove, but there's resistance. It's like he's in the same time signature, but not exactly hitting on the beat. And then just after two minutes, the vocals will wail again and finally start falling into the beat, but not immediately takes time. And around that same time, I don't know, I have this mental image that maybe the drummer hasn't been behind the drum set yet. He's somewhere else on stage making some of these sounds, or maybe he's at the bar. I don't know, but because I feel like I can hear him crash through the cymbals as he's climbing behind the set. It takes a bit for the drums to find their place, and this is the telling moment. It's not smooth and seamless like a rehearsed composition. It fumbles a bit, but just for a moment a measure, and then it locks in. The band winds up, and at the three-minute mark, they are levitating. To walk backwards down the road alone, I felt it coming behind me. I couldn't control it, I couldn't control myself. I called up my favorite lady, I took my favorite bottle off of the top shelf. I wandered slowly down the hallway, Quiet and alone. I wandered slowly down the corridor, all by myself and on my own. I had no weapon. There was no one left to hurt. I had no weapons, but my conversation was very curt. I distinguished the light from the darkness all by myself, I did it, yes. I distinguished the light from the darkness. I cleaned up the mess. In the bathroom on the floor, let me roll and run and run. 
there's one example. Of course, I could spend the rest of this episode playing selections of their catalog that all sound totally different. But that's the magic of this band. When they play, they roll the dice and just see what happens. We we heard a clip that's like a little bit of what the band sounds like, but beyond like what we're kind of able to listen to in this particular context, is there any kind of work from them that feels somewhat representative of like their core ethos? Yeah. Um, so thinking back across the clips we've already heard, there's one release that I feel like I can hear people obliquely pointing to. The Headdress album came out in 2002, and it hit at a moment when the band suddenly got a bunch of press that opened gates for them to tour out and in the world. And that record was just reissued on Three Lobe, so it's probably the thing that most people listening to this that aren't already familiar with the band will be aware of. So does that sound like the kind of thing that you're thinking about, or...? Yeah, well, okay, so how about, what if we start there and talked about, like, how how is this record representative of Sunburn, Hand of the Man, what do they do? Like, it seems like there is a lot of the band kind of contained in this one release. Um, so maybe if we can't tell or go through the story chronologically, uh, maybe this would be a good place to start and then spin outward. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great plan. Yeah, but I still need a push, Allison. So here's my idea. Why don't you give me a focusing question that I can use to put together a segment? I'll try to answer your question, and I'll see where else it takes me. Then I'll come back to you and see where we should go next. If that sounds good, then I don't know. Where should I start? One thing that I found really striking with the reissue was just like how detailed the album art was. Um it really looks like something that was handmade and not like digitally designed to look like it's handmade. Um, where, where did that part of it come from? And I guess like, was that kind of connected at all with the album creation process? Yeah, I can answer that. So I think that's a great place for me to start. Since we aren't doing the linear narrative thing, I'm going to start with the headdress reissue. My friend Corey Rayburn, who we've already heard from in this episode, recently released a 20th anniversary reissue of this record. During one of my conversations with him, I asked what it was about that record that made him want to do the reissue. And this is what he said. There's just so much that goes on with that record. It's just, it's like you were just dropped in from the sky into like some sort of communal seance or some sort of weird communal experience and then at the end of 40 minutes you're taken back out and it continues but you're just not there anymore and you know it wasn't the first you know wild animal jaybird those to me were some of the ones that really kind of stood out to me but headdress was always like you know a, a talismanic kind of item that one of the early signposts as to what makes them special and different 
So that tells us some about the motivations behind the reissue. But I think we need to rewind and hear about how the first version got made. When I was up in New England recording for the podcast, I went to speak with Ron Schneiderman at his home in Brattleboro, Vermont. We heard from Ron earlier in this episode, but before he joined the band, Ron released the original version of Headdress. It was on a label called Records. Now, that's not the actual name of his label. It was more of a joke name to himself, but that's a story for a different podcast. Ron knew a couple of the band members, but he wanted to meet up with John Maloney. You'll recall he's one of the band's founding members. He was also the driving force behind most of the band's CD releases at this time. Yeah, so there was like a meeting at a coffee shop, 1369 in uh, Central Square. I don't think I'd met John before that. We just talked about doing some doing some records and stuff, and uh, and I remember being like um, wanting to get some of the CDRs they were doing then. They were like the first four or five, like Jay Bird and Mind of a Brother and um, Wild Animal. But I remember I remember wanting to get some of those because I had heard about them, but I hadn't gotten them yet. And I was like, I, want, I wanted to buy some to sell to to distro out, but also because I had some friends who wanted them. So I, I got like five of each of them from him. We went to the ATM so I could get some cash to give it to him. I bought them right there, and I sent them off. Sent a set off to um, Ed Hardy. Ed Hardy ran Eclipse Records, and I had been at the time was had this um, mailing thing going on with Julian Cope and he had been picking things that like a few things I'd sent him like the Comets on Fire record we had done the Acid Mothers on my distro we did the Acid Mother records that that Squealer was doing so I guess it was probably through Butch that we got hooked in that Julian and I got hooked up we came up and I and I sent them to Julian and then he started going crazy over those on his uh on the Head Heritage site that was kind of like a big step of like uh finally like somebody's got getting a chance to hear these who could talk about it to other people. Those people Ron mentioned, Ed Hardy and Julian Cope, I didn't talk to them for this podcast, but you'll hear people refer to both these guys all throughout the Sunburn story. So I just wanted to quickly explain who they are. Ed Hardy ran Eclipse Records. That's what Corey Rayburn described as the wayfinding device where he first discovered Sunburn's music. Julian Cope is an English musician and incredibly influential author, a musicologist, and a supporter of the band. Let's go back to Ron Schneiderman. Yeah. So that was how we started talking about the record. <laughs> and then it was like when people were into it, I was like, well, let's get a record going. Let's just find a way to do it. And it was cool. It was a really cool process doing that record, actually. As a, you know, they're all, all different. They got, they got their stories, but that record really was a special one. I asked him to say more about what made it special to him. Well, it's just like, you know, different, looking at the different artists that came up and just seeing how much of like the art we used was like so handmade, you know, whether it was the uh, label art, you know, have you seen that? I mean, I could pull a copy out and show it to you. Now at this point, Ron gets up and he walks across the room to his record shelves. He rummages around and says something like, this looks like my last copy. He pulls out a record still in its shrink wrap. And as he walks back, he starts ripping the plastic off. You know, we would set, I would go by and there'd be like trying to do edits and just the stuff sounded wild and all that. But, you know, when, you, when they hand, it, hand you the pieces and it's like this front cover piece is like, you know, it's handmade by a friend, you know, it's like this. And then also this, the label art was like, you know, actually like constructed you know, like, you know, like when you held it, it was, you know, they were the actual feathers, you know, you know, it's like from a real, it's got some real life in it. 
To put this into context, normally a band will give their label their album art as computer files that the label can then package up and submit to the manufacturer. But Ron, he was given physical pieces of art, a patch, an intricate little sculpture made out of feathers, a collage. I asked John Maloney and Rob Thomas about the origin of this artwork. But Chad, Chad made that thing. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, from feathers he found from a bird that he found in, 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 um, out in Arizona when he was doing his time out there. He, he made that. I have it. The label. Yeah, yeah, that was him. And some hippie lady he, had, he met out there sewed the patch together that's the front cover. I made, I made the back cover for that one. And all, all those parts are here at the house. Yeah. Hold on, hold on a second. Now at this point, John hops up. We're back at his house right now. And he trots out of the room. He comes back a couple of minutes later carrying this piece of burlap with the actual patch from the album's cover sewn onto it. Rob explains that their bandmate Chad Cooper was out west doing some psychonautic experiments. And he was hanging out with someone called... Mother of Sonora Raven. Like an actual, yeah. genuine, like, hippie, crunchy, rainbow psycho. Yeah. <laughs> that Chad was hanging yeah. with. When he described the, ba- the band to her, he, that's what, he met her and he's like, I'm in this band and it's sort of, this is what it's about. And she's, while he told her the story of the band, she sewed that patch together. And then he sent it back to us along with that, that feather montage. I want to shift our focus back to the reissue. You heard Rob and John talking about all these individual pieces of art. So I was curious how the reissue got put together. This is Sarah Gibbons. She's another Sunburn band member, and she did the redesign and layout for the reissue. I wondered if she started with computer files or went back to these original pieces of art. I was handed all of the pieces. Also, it it already existed, right? And they just they wanted to recreate it, but but better, but but also not better. Like if you notice the artwork on the back cover is a scan of the original artwork, but as it exists 20 years later. So it's been sitting around for 20 years. It's faded. It has like a couple of like wrinkles and tears in it that, you know, that are still there. So it's not as like clean or crisp or, or saturated as the original image was, but the resolution of the image is like way sharper and way more true to life than the original one was. I asked Sarah if she could describe the creative motivation that drove this work. So they were remastering the record to clarify the sound, right? To, to crisp it up, to, to improve the sound. So I think my approach to the artwork was just to do the same thing. You know, there wasn't, there was a decision made to not have an essay. And in, and in place of that, we had the back of the patch. And it was really important to me to just capture all of these objects in a way that was as amplified, as clarified, as fine-tuned as the new audio would be. So I had like museum quality images captured of the different objects. I put them together again from scratch and zoomed in really close and really carefully cleaned up the images and really made sure that they were remastered. So now we've heard all about the album artwork for both the original and reissue releases of Headdress. I want to go back to my conversation with Ron Schneiderman about the original album. Because while he was opening up that record and showing it to me, it seemed for him a profound moment, even 20 years after the record is out. And I wanted to know more about that. 
like really like the sense of like this is not just like you know goofing out like not I mean like there's no it's it is what it is it's like there's an energy to it that that comes out in the music comes out and just hanging out it's not about like what am I making to make it this an interesting record it's like no this is just what we have this is what we got it's like what I mean I guess what I'm trying to say is like I spend a lot of time around people trying to get records out to be successful musicians and artists and labels and there's a million ways of doing it and everybody has their, their thing and it's and I'm not, I won't, I'm not trying to be cynical about that either because I mean if it works it works and that's fine um, this this felt oh, like uh, this just when I took it I was just like this just feels like um, not of that mindset you know when a record hits the warehouse and you open it up like you don't always like it's very rare that you get that feeling of like what you're holding is like beyond what you put put into like like comes to there's like an alchemy in there like i felt like a real alchemy to it when i opened the first one up i was like just like this one <laughs> you know it's like it's really like had something to it like there was a, a power in it and it was yeah i mean so it was and it was very you know very alluring <laughs> very drew me in quite a bit and i was definitely you know ready to go with it you know So, Allison, does that answer your questions about, like, where the record came from and the album art? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what's next? What what question's next? So for Headdress, where did the music come from, like, for the actual recording itself? It doesn't seem like this mm-hmm. is really a band that ever did the kind of typical, like, let's get together and write in the studio and, yeah. like, hide out for a week. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, where did the record itself actually yeah. come from? Oh yeah, yes, the music. Okay, here we go. The vast majority of the music that Sunburn Hand of the Man has released was pulled from live recordings. The audio for Headdress came from three locations. The band's loft space in the Charlestown neighborhood of Boston. The Burren, a traditionalist Irish pub in Somerville, Massachusetts. And Outdoors on the Amherst Commons. We'll hear more about the loft and the Burren in later episodes. For today's episode, we'll focus on the Amherst Commons, where, for several years, there was a fall mini-festival called A Stone for insert the artist's name. One was a stone for David Crosby, but the other ones were named after more esoteric figures. For example, the headdress audio came from a stone for Don Conca, and I'll let you do your own digging on that. So I talked with a number of the band members about their memories of that Stone 4 show. We'll start with Conrad Capistran, who was a founding member of the band, but he had moved out to Western Massachusetts at this point and only played with Sunburn once a year at the Stone Four shows. We'll also hear from John Maloney, Rob Thomas, and Dave Bohill. 
We put on these shows in Amherst Common. Byron, Josh Burkett, and me, like, were the people who organized it and did, like, the promo. You know, whatever. Like, I did flop flyers. Yeah, a, Amherst is a college town. It's too big. There's UMass Amherst, which is the giant state, state school. flagship school for the state. And then there's Amherst College, which is, like, a second-tier Ivy League. And they both kind of share the common. It's like just a park in the middle of town, very grassy, a few big giant trees surrounding it. There's a parking lot right there. There's a bunch of restaurants and old buildings. It's right in the center of town. They were always in September, so it was right after school who'd come back in. So there were tons of people walking around, just gawking, you know, strangers gawking. The weather was always nice, you know, archetypal, uh, beautiful New England fall weather. It was it was like the quintessential fall day. It was so nice, kind of cool, leaves falling, sun shining. And I just remember being really excited to play that fun, happy anxiety that you get when you're, when you're involved with something new. And that, that's what Sunburn was, you know? And I was just like, this is going to be fucking crazy. <laughs> That last voice was Dave Bohill. He was about 19 at the time and had just recently joined the band. We'll hear a bit more from him later. First, I want to bring back in Chris Corsano. He hadn't joined Sunburn at this point, but he was playing with another group at that show, and he shared some interesting context about what was happening in the wider world. So it was September 29th, um, 2001. So September 11th, had just come and and it was that weird period where it's like what's going on and you know Bush is gearing up to invade and that was just a thing. There's a lot of people who were up there from New York who were just escaping New York because the vibe was so wretched. And uh, so Jim O'Rourke was there. He played with Thurston and Byron and backing up Dan Ireton's band, Corsano on drums and and uh, yeah, Tom Verlaine was in the audience. The second clip was Rob Thomas adding a bit more about the psychic backdrop of this performance and some of the assembled musicians. I was curious to know what else Chris remembered from that gig. And then, you know, I think I think that was the, the one where there was like a dog, maybe Critter's dog, just like running around and like Maloney in the middle of, you know, doing some vocal stuff just gave like a run doggy run. And it sounded perfect. Like it was like you couldn't write a better lyric. Um but it was cool to see how kind of tuned in always and with like kind of a sense of humor, but it was like also the perfect thing to say because it was this outdoor show and this dog was just like blazing around and that thing of just grabbing on to the moment, which all of them do super well. I wondered what playing that show, given all the context that we've heard, was like for the members. I asked Rob Thomas and John Maloney to share more about what they remembered. I remember when we played the set, just like, it was a good set. You could tell, it was one of those sets where you could tell we, we were kind of levitating and the audience was with us and strangers were like dancing and just like, wow, this is fucking nuts. And yeah, and I saw Mascus and Tom Verlaine watching us and they were just like laughing, smiling, shaking their heads like, what the fuck is this shit? And uh, yeah, it was a very cool, <laughs> cool day, for, especially after the, uh, like the national trauma. It felt like a breath yeah. of a relief first breath of, you know, like the first sense of normalcy or something after that shit. Yeah, everything, everybody yeah. was so affected by that. Yeah.
sounded like a fairly intense show, and I wondered what it was like for Dave Bohill, being younger and kind of new to the band, and now here he is playing in front of musicians like Jay Maskus and Thurston Moore and Tom Verlaine. I feel like a few times in those early years, I tried to tell myself, like, don't blow it, bro. Like, do, do a good job. Don't do too much. And so I feel like I played really well on that show. That comment about being worried caught my ear. And I wondered if that sort of criticism was a dynamic in the band. No, no, not really. It was always just like trying to like impress those boys, you know? That's all it was. There was never, there was never like you blew it. There was not even once. It was always just like, oh shit, you like, you brought it. There would be that, that kind of like after show. Oh, dude, that time, like Chad, did you hear what Chad was doing? Rob the whole time, you know? John the whole fucking time, Phil Franklin the whole motherfucking time. But like, I was just the, the insecure one that was like trying to be noticed, but it was just always so fucking fun just to at the end be like, yeah, we, we nailed them. We got it. Because confounding the audience was, I think, as important as impressing the audience at times. Confounding as much as impressing the audience. I think that tells us a lot about Sunburn. Let's close this segment by turning back to one of those audience members that they were confounding and hopefully impressing. Here's more of what Chris Corsano remembers from that performance. It's hard to make an outdoor show feel also like keyed up and chaotic. Uh, Like, cause it was, you know, spread out and it wasn't like jam packed with the people. So, you're not getting like bouncing off walls, either the sound or people bouncing off walls, literally or whatever, you know, like, but yeah, they kind of managed to, to take this like pastoral, pastoral outdoor scene and add, um, some like high octane to it, which was like, oh, that's not every band can kind of do that. Sometimes like outdoor shows are just a little tough because you, you pour out all this energy and it just goes in every direction, but they somehow like got like the uh, lift off. That does, okay, so everything we've heard so far about headdress, do you feel like that tells the story of that album? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I guess I'm still wondering, have we gotten any closer to figuring out, like, what's the elevator pitch Hmm. for this band? Because I think if you told somebody the entire story of Headdress, that is also just kind of a lot of information. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So Byron actually gave a nice little uh, moment. Um, Here, let me play that for you. Okay. Everything is approached with the same kind of reckless abandon. They're, they sometimes don't seem like a band so much as like a juggernaut. <laughs> it's just, you know, and, or it's a, you know, it's a soapbox derby car on fire going down a, a very, very long hill. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it's definitely a colorful illustration. Yeah. I mean, and I think to me it's helpful because it tells me something about the band. Mm -hmm. Because instead of music world jargon that's meaningless outside certain circles, he's speaking figuratively and it paints a visceral image of what this band is all about. 
Oh, but, you know, thinking figuratively, there is one more clip that I think is a great place to wrap up this episode. It's from Ron Schneiderman. You'll recall he ran the label that released the original version of Headdress. About a year after that album came out, he joined Sunburn and has been a steady fixture in the band. During our conversation, Ron told me that, you know, when he's talking to like normal people, this is how he describes how the band has functioned over the decades. He uses this comparison that might be a bit more familiar to the average listener. Uh, There's been times that I've found myself trying to explain Sunburn, comparing it to a community orchestra. Okay. To say like, okay, um, how does that work? Well, you know, community orchestra gets together. Most people get to know each other in the orchestra. Not everybody, but a lot of them. They, um, and things happen. They, some people play in that orchestra for eight months or a year. They move on, maybe come back. Some people hang out for a couple of years. Relationships form. People unite in those things. They become a group within the group. Some people stick around for 25 years, just hang out and just participate. Some people are like the ones who are calling the shots on the tour. And everyone says, thank you, because <laughs> I can't do that. Or somebody's like, I got all this uh, idea for this printing of this thing. So I use that kind of as a model sometimes to talk about that. It's not so special uh, or unique, but it is like special. <laughs> you know, it's got, because it it's in this framework. And, it, and I mean, that speaks to a different cultural moment, maybe. And we're not rehashing classical music. So I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay, so I think we've gotten off to a pretty good start, but where are we going next? I think it's time to go back to the beginning. We have an idea of what this band was when they released the Headdress album, and it sounds like that album was part of a nexus of events that pushed them out and into the world. So I think we go back to understand how they got up to that point. And once we get back to Headdress, and then we can go from there, if that sounds like a reasonable plan. Yeah, let's yeah. get going. Um, what do you think of this organization where you give me some questions and then I'll put a segment together that tries to answer it? Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I'll still have to try to control myself with asking too many questions because, yeah, it's a really like fascinating enterprise uh, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot. Awesome. Thank you. All right. See you later, Kelly. You've been listening to No Way Out an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. If you check out the show notes, we've included a list of links to pictures and other things discussed in this episode. We also have a list of the songs used in the episode, with links so you can go hear them in their entirety. I'm Kelly Davis. I hosted and produced this episode. My special guest was Allison Hussey. Editorial support was provided by Chris Sims and Allison Hussey. Portions of this episode were recorded in the studios of WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more.